Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Jeff Dunham is undoubtedly the most successful ventriloquist comedian of our lifetime. The 60-year-old from Dallas made his first appearance on The Tonight Show back in 1990. He competed in disguise as Pirate this fall on The Masked Singer. In between, he's released 10 comedy specials, six on Comedy Central starting in 2006, followed by a primetime NBC special, two Netflix specials, then back to Comedy Central during the pandemic, where he debuted a completely unrehearsed last-minute pandemic holiday special for the Friday after Thanksgiving in 2020. His 11th special, Me the People, came out this Black Friday, also exclusively on Comedy Central. Donham sat down with me to talk about his career and the state of comedy ventriloquism. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance. And now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. to play soccer as a kid so uh you know that's probably why i don't appreciate it anymore because my parents made me play it <laughs> but they just wanted to, to stall you before you could uh start your burgeoning career as a ventriloquist right no like i was try already, soccer first i was already doing that they were trying to get me away from the dolls i think <laughs> so jeff dunham last things first thank you so much for for joining me my uh pl- your publicist we're promoting your new special, Me the People, which is out uh, day after Thanksgiving on Comedy Central and Paramount Plus. Yep. Uh, not, not Paramount Plus. The Paramount Plus doesn't happen for a few months, so people shouldn't even waste their time on that. Okay. <laughs> that was going to be one of my follow-up questions. Just but... Comedy Central on Friday night. That's it. But the press s- says that your 2019 Netflix special, Beside Himself, yep. still still ranks in the top five most watched among all Netflix comedy specials. Wow, that, I was, I, I'd forgotten that. I always pay attention to the Comedy Central stuff because the numbers are so big and they give us right. actual numbers there. So, uh, yeah, no, I had forgotten that. That's pretty great. Well, wow. what's even greater about that to me is the fact that so many other comedians and showrunners have complained that they can't even get numbers from Netflix. So the idea that you even know that where you rank is amazing you, to me. You know, in all these years, it's like we have agents and people who go, no, no, I can get the numbers. <laughs> it's like, how, what, how do you do that? And then nobody will tell you. But it's always the agents. The, somehow the agents have, I don't know, back doors in there. Maybe there's couches and horrible things that go on to get numbers, but not, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I do have some compromising photos of Robbie Pra somewhere, but I don't know. <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe that's how it works. I have no earthly idea. So, yeah, but no, there have been a handful of people that have proven that they get real numbers. So, great. But, yeah, as we, as we mentioned, Comedy Central, you your new special is there, and you, your specials from the, from the late 2000s broke records for Comedy Central. Yeah, yeah. Does, does that history, is that go back long enough that that's what keeps you loyal to them? In the face of Netflix no. money or NBC wanting to do a special with you, that you're like no, Comedy Central, we, that's my home. Yeah, we had a we had a, a bunch of specials on Comedy Central. I can't remember how many it was in a row. Was it six or six, 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 seven, eight, nine, ten, 
we had six in a row on Comedy Central, and then I did uh, went over to NBC and did one, so that's seven, and then I did uh, uh, t- uh, two on uh, Netflix, um, and then uh, no one cares about this, and then back to Comedy Central. So I, I love Comedy Central simply because it's not the the dark abyss that happens mm-hmm. on on Netflix is great, but Comedy Central tends to uh, re-air things, and so it's in your face, and it's different than, you know, a uh, subscription service. Um, uh, we have to search for it and download it yourself. They only have X amount of of, of acreage that they can, you know, uh, advertise stuff. And they, they pick, you know, they pick who, who your, your, your interface looks way different than mine. And so it's whatever you're interested in, you know, those are the things that get promoted to you. So if you haven't ever looked for me or searched, then you're never going to see me on Netflix unless you actually look for it yourself, right. which is fine. I get it. But I love that comedy central actually does promotions and, and, uh, 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 and repeats. And it's, so it's always there. People are flipping through the channels and there it is on cable TV. It's great. But before I want to go back before that, if you don't mind, because I know I've mentioned this to your manager, Judy. I just I have a distinct memory. I was living in Arizona in the early 2000s, and I have this distinct memory of seeing you perform at the Tempe Improv in like 2002. Mm-hmm. And it was the very first time I ever saw fans bring merch to a show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I just, um, I stumbled into the merchandise thing. Uh, the, we first started coming out with peanut plush peanut dolls in 97 and, uh, it was great. It was crazy. And I think it's just because of my characters or what they are. They just, it just kind of lends itself to how could I not have merchandise? And then we did t-shirts and stuff like that. But yeah, when you give somebody a doll and they love the doll and then there's the event comes back again and they can bring it back. I just, I understand it. It's it's great. It's really fun. Yeah, I have I have peanut people that will bring peanut dolls from back then that I signed back then and have me resign it. So it's it's pretty wow. great. Yeah, a long time ago. I mean, that's that's a testament to the loyalty that you inspire in your fans. That well, I, I you know I treat this like a business. Uh, I'm an artist on stage, but a, a business person when I when I'm off stage, and I I look at it like Jobs did, like Steve Jobs. You went to an, you, you when Apple, when the new year would come along, you knew that Apple was going to give you what you wanted. You were going to find something cool. Whatever it was, they slightly improved it uh, at the, whatever the launch was in the fall of that year. You know that we'll have proved on what you like. But then every once in a while, Steve would bring out something that you didn't know you needed and you loved it. And uh, so I try and do the same thing. When people come to my show, I give them what they expect and what they love and make it a little better than last time and more material and different material. But then uh, I also try and come out with something new. So when they come to the show, they'll see something completely different. So I think it's just a matter of of a, a real careful balance of giving people what they expect and what they didn't know they wanted. Right. But two decades ago, you had such devoted fans and yet you were still playing at the clubs. And you couldn't, and you couldn't convince Comedy Central to give you airtime. That's true. And you, and you had been in the business already for a couple decades at that point. You'd done Carson. You had Hertz commercials. You you you'd done Broadway. You had all this stuff, and yet. Well, I completely, st- I completely understand it because if a ventriloquist act on the outset is kind of sad. <laughs> hey, my <laughs> last name is my last name is McCarthy. You don't have to tell. Oh, me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So. It's it's just kind of sad on the outset. So the the trouble begins when somebody learns 
the art of ventriloquism. It's just a skill, a developed skill that you take a little, little practice, like playing a musical instrument or a sport. Anybody can learn it. That's where the trouble begins, because then people think, well, I've learned the skill of ventriloquism. Now I'm a ventriloquist. Now I'm going to do a show. Wait, wait, wait. You have to learn to be funny. You have to learn to entertain. So it's too easy to become a ventriloquist because you can just get on stage after you've learned the skill. So becoming a comedian to me is infinitely more important than learning that skill. So that's why those dedicated fans keep showing up over and over is because I think they find the act funny. So, But how did you get yourself psychologically through that part of the grind before you had to make that first special yourself and then have Judy sell it to Comedy Central and then the ratings came back and it's like, oh, yeah, people actually do love ventriloquism. Well, yeah, and so I didn't complete that thought there. The act is funny, but at the same time, it's still a ventriloquist act. And I think anybody at that network level is not going to bother. They're going to go ventriloquist. No, 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 no. We don't want that. That's not our brand. It's not, we're, it's not cool. That's the bottom line. It's not cool. So um, Judy and other management at the time, I think they had to pretty much beg Comedy Central, look, he's produced this special, he's paid for it himself. Why don't you look at it? Could you show it just once? Just air it once and let's see what happens. So they said, and they, oh, I think they did some horse trading where they said, we'll give you this other comedian if you'll play Dunham. And they went, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, fine. You know, that's how that works. So mm-hmm. they did, and they aired it on a Friday night one time, and we got a hold of them on Monday, and we said, what were the ratings? What were?" The, and they said, they literally said, well, we think there was a mistake. We'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> so the number was so huge, they couldn't believe it. And they immediately uh, asked for another one. And uh, that's when I did Spark of Insanity, and the second one, which was introducing Occupy the Dead Terrorist, and then that, in 08, just literally excuse the expression exploded was it that special itself or was it youtube or was it a combination of the the two that really broke you on a global scale because then after that you started doing world tours and you jumped from clubs to theaters to arenas yeah we um we look at it like a like a perfect storm because at that time in 07 it was the perfect time for Ahmed the dead terrorist i had used him i, I first invented uh, created him a year after 9-11 uh, nothing funny about 9-11 ever will be. At that time, I looked to Letterman and Leno, and what were they making fun of? They were making fun of Osama bin Laden and those guys that did that horrible thing. And so they were joking about, where is the where is Osama bin Laden? And I thought to myself, I know where he is. He's dead, and he's living in my suitcase with my guys hiding out. So I created this bumbling skeleton and called him the dead Osama. I used that for a couple of years, and it went great. Uh, couldn't have gone over better because the country was ready for it. Then I waited a few years, took him out of the show when Osama bin Laden got out of the spotlight, and then brought him back in 06, getting ready for the next special because I wanted a new character. I thought, I'll change him from the dead Osama to a general, just a terrorist. I'm not going to say where he's from. I'm going to say he's not Muslim, but he's just a terrorist. Then I rewrote things and uh, came out with him. And then you're right. When that special came out, it was the country was ready for that kind of humor. They were still making fun of, they, they were happy to make fun of that stuff. You whistle in the dark uh, and you make fun of what you're afraid of and it makes it more tolerable. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was doing. And so it was that. They were ready for it. It was the perfect timing for Ahmed. It was also when YouTube was taken off with not, not just college kids, but with a, a grown older people and with the military especially. And so uh, we came out with a couple of YouTubes, and it went 
like wildfire all over just not just the, our country but all over the world and people in other countries thought it was great i even though i even heard that uh people in iran were sitting around at lunch you know going i kill you so <laughs> um yeah it was a pretty much a phenomenon and then, yeah that was this giant uh engine that got me off the launch pad and uh and uh, uh Ahmed is what you know, was enough fuel to keep the career really going hard now obviously Ahmed. There was a there was a definite source material for why you decided to create that character. Mm-hmm. You introduce a new character in this special, Earl. Mm-hmm. What goes into the the calculus of deciding it's time for a new character and this is what the new character is going to be? Sure, I, I always try and create characters that I think people will respond to. They can they have to identify with them. They have to know that character and understand them kind of intuitively. Mm-hmm. And that's where Bubba J comes along. Just this redneck guy, you know, uh, a lot of people know that who that guy is. Of course, Walter, this curmudgeonly old man who doesn't know that guy. Nobody knows a terrorist, but at the same time, I think that anger was, uh, just this bumbling idiot with anger. Everybody could at least laugh at that. Mm-hmm. But then Earl, everybody gets stuck on their smart devices too much of the time. Everybody, 99% of us gets stuck on our smart devices too much of the time. So we can identify with that. Children uh, are on them too on them too much. Parents have to deal with it. Kids complain because their parents are on them too much. So everybody knows somebody's stuck on the smart devices. And so I thought, I'm going to create a younger guy that also has the problem of living in his parents' basement. Where, you know, So many families are living with that, living with that now. When the kids come back home, it won't go away. So there's all kinds of things there that people understand right in the outset, and then then you write jokes around that, and it's a, almost a surefire thing. How much though has like I I remember watching your biography special, which came out ten years ago now, 2012. That was the first one. Then they came out with another one. Oh, they did come out with a okay, yeah, but but, yeah. but I say 2012 because even ten years ago, you were on the forefront of 3D printing, right? Because you showed how you how you build your own dummies, and it's so I wonder just in the span of your career, which spans what five decades at this point? Yeah, yeah. I started. How, when I was I started when I was eight, and I'm sixty now. So yeah. So <laughs> how much how how amazing is it to think of the difference in terms of how you had to create build a character when you were a teenager versus how you can do it for Earl? Sure. I mean, uh, I really seriously didn't get in, into the dummy making until the middle 80s um, when I was in college. And uh, yeah, back then it was uh, uh, plastic wood and fiberglass. And uh, those are the mediums that I used until, yeah, until, like you said, 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And uh, uh, I still sculpt them in clay. I still sculpt them. Uh, however, I do have a digital sculptor now that helps me every once in a while. I'll give him notes and he'll come up with something and we'll just digitally put it together. Um, I'll give him notes and he'll make changes. But still, though, when I have the time, I'd make them out of clay. Then I do a 3D scan and then I build the shell of the dummy with a 3D printer. So, yeah. And uh, there's still a little human element in there with the with the sculpting by hand. But um yeah, I mean, uh, the technology is great. All that's doing is saving time. It doesn't make the dummy any better. It's just a time saver is all it is. Oh, and chemicals, too. I hated doing the fiberglass stuff. I had another guy. I did I did the first – this Walter that I use now, I made out of fiberglass. And uh, after getting high in the in the garage, not meaning to, uh, <laughs> I thought this was a horrible thing. So I had – I then gave it to – would give the sculpts to somebody else, and uh, he, would, he would make the fiberglass head for me. But that was – 
nuts. I got out of fiberglass as fast right. as possible. That's for people who have air filters. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I know you talked, you touched on this briefly about when you were younger in your career and just in life, that there was more of a stigma of, against being a ventriloquist. Mm-hmm. But I think not just the success of your career, but just watching America's Got Talent on any given summer on NBC, people love ventriloquism. Yeah, it's really Sever- on. Several ventriloquists have, have won, starting with Terry Fader, but then like Darcy Lynn and uh, Paul Zerden, the Br- British guy, mm-hmm. came over and won. It's uh, yeah, I don't I don't understand it. I really don't. It's but it is a, a self contained special effect. So uh, there's this dummy talking, and it shouldn't be talking, and it's talking. So there's that, and there's entertainment value. Everybody you named right there I think is pretty musical. For sure, Terry and uh, Darcy Lynn. What did Paul do? Paul did more tricks. He did ventriloquist tricks, I think. Um, yeah, more, more voice-throwing kind of yeah. stuff. So you've yet to name a comedian who does ventriloquism. And that's uh, oh snap! <laughs> well, I'm serious. Those guys they focus on on music where they and they're mm-hmm. brilliant at it. They're great. Darcy Lynn is an amazing singer. Uh, Terry Fader, same thing. Great impressions and voices. Mm-hmm. Paul did some amazing effects and tricks and stuff like that. But I tend to be on the comedy side of things, and I you know I, I've done ventriloquial tricks a few times, but I tend to to uh, go with the with the comedy of it. And I knew years and years ago. Um, when I started doing the comedy clubs in Los Angeles, you know, I do the ventriloquist trick thing. And then, you know, Jerry Seinfeld would follow me and kill. And I'd sit there and watch these guys. And I go, what is the difference here? The difference is they're just comedians. They're just telling jokes and funny stories and they're entertaining. How am I different? I'm doing tricks that won't last. I can't come back to this same audience tomorrow night and do the exact same show because they've seen the trick. It's like seeing a juggler. You can see that guy one time, maybe twice. Then you know the act. So he's going to have to come up with a whole new act of juggling different things in a different way. That's not going to last. So a juggler could not have a, his own show on TV. But somebody who's funny, you know, I, I would listen. I would watch a bad juggler that that's funny for 45 minutes. And you'd watch a skilled juggler for how long? Not very long. You know what I mean? Because all, all it is is a bunch of amazing, skillful tricks. Well, I, how, how long can you do that? It's that, is, of- that is something that, you know, when I watch America's Got Talent runs through my head because they're all competing for headlining a Vegas show. So it's like right. you're doing three minutes on TV, but how does that translate to an hour and a half? Yeah, how can you? Yeah, it's exactly right, and it's uh, yeah. You think about that, and they you wonder about some of the ones that they push on and, and go forward. I, I get it, it's for great great TV, but it, even then, sometimes you go, well, they've done two really good bits. What's going to be their third one? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So focusing on the comedy, then I've I've spoken to a number of comedians about this. the The idea of when you're famous enough and you're and you're popular enough that you can graduate to theaters and then arenas on the one hand it's great because you get the adulation of 20,000 people all at once Mm -hmm. but then as a comedian but as a fan there's this there's this toggle of like well how enjoyable is it to watch it in an arena versus watching it in a club in a a club I I feel like it might even be more of a weird discussion to have with a ventriloquist right well, yeah, and of course we addressed that when I was doing the clubs, and it went from clubs to uh, to theaters, 
Um, and, you know, a 2,000-seat house with what I do is okay. It's fine. But even now, you know, if I'll do some fill-in dates or some practice dates for a special, we'll do theaters. And even then, if it's a two or 3,000-seat house, we put up the giant screen. And now certainly in the arenas when you're doing – eight, nine, 10, 12,000 people, it's got to be a giant screen. So they feel like they're right there. But I, I will admit it is fun to go back to the 2,500 seat house because it is more intimate and those laughs are so much faster. And that's what I loved about the special that's, that's coming out Friday. We went back to the Warner theater in DC where I did spark. And uh, I mean, and that is a hip, hip crowd, man. They were right on top of everything, every reference, every joke, uh, every little nuance. They were just right there. It's really interesting how you can how you can feel an intelligent crowd versus one that's drinking too much and, you know, not the sharpest tools <laughs> shed. That's what happens when you throw in the alcohol. They don't get all the references. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, okay. So speaking of which, since you just brought up with the references, I don't want to be one of the two boneheads that you mentioned out of the hundred who might get <laughs> right. Because I'm not, I'm not asking this to say that I'm offended. I'm more just asking out of curiosity mm-hmm. because some of the references are very distinctly partisan, like for an audience to get the, a joke about Jose Jalapeno on a stick arriving on a bus from Martha's vineyard. Sure. That's not only a very specific reference, but it's, but it's also a partisan reference, right? Because sure. Well, what I try and do is when whoever's in office is who I, who I make fun of. And mm-hmm. um, I think what's happened today is comedians pick sides and then they start getting really nasty about it and they call the other half idiots. And it happens on both sides. Uh, I go back to the guys like Will Rogers, Bob Hope, Carson, Leno. You never knew what those guys preferences were when it comes to politics. It's like you had no clue. They would make fun of whoever was in office. They would make fun of an individual guy. They wouldn't make fun of big groups. And it was good-natured fun. It wasn't anything mean or nasty. And it's the same way in my show. You know, when Trump was in office, I had a hell of a lot of fun with that. The videos I did on YouTube were Walter dressed up as Grump, President Grump, and uh, he had on the big wig and all that, and we made a goof of him. And uh, I even had a character named Larry who was Trump's personal advisor, and, of course, he was a mess. He was a stressed-out mess and half on drugs. We didn't know what was going on because he was, you know, just couldn't deal with the stress of of Trump's tweeting and <laughs> didn't know if he was supposed to tell him to stop or whatever. So that was then. Now that the, the, the calendar moves forward and now we have Biden in office. So I'm having fun with that as well. So yeah, there's partisan jokes. Uh, but hopefully I, I uh, do a little bit of both uh, throughout the years. It's whatever's, whatever's on the forefront, whoever is on the pedestal to me is the one who gets the most tomatoes thrown at him. Right. But you, you also obviously know that there's a certain, criticism of you because you introduce it with peanut being the head of HR accusing you of all these things. Oh, sure. Yeah. That was the other thing I <laughs> hit it, hit it straight on the head is what I think is uh yeah, peanuts there and he's making fun of, uh, um, uh, he's not making fun. He's, he's trying to make an issue of all the HR stuff. Right. And Are you I trying to address out- the critics with that or. Oh yeah. I, I point out to the audience. I say what it is. Well, uh, peanut says that my act is racist and blah, 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 whatever anybody says all the time. Uh, uh, I make fun of that. And I don't, I don't think I defend it. I think I just more make fun of, of the fact that everybody thinks I'm racist where I, I don't, I don't think I'm racist. I think I've created characters that are caricatures of certain walks of life and certain people, right. but we never, you know, there's never any uh, uh, jokes about those groups putting them down. I mean, Bubba Jay as this redneck guy is celebrated as a redneck. 
old people don't get upset that I'm making fun of old people with Walter. It's just kind of celebrated and people laugh at it. Uh, terrorism, again, <laughs> not not celebrating terrorism, but I do celebrate the fact that he has fallen in the, Ahmed has fallen in love with the Western culture mm-hmm. and he loves the movies, he loves the cars, he loves the rock and roll. Um, um, so that's, that's the way Ahmed works now. Uh, it's certainly, um, not what he, he's not what he was 10 years ago. Sure. But I mean, that is obviously the, like the delicate dance of being a, a comedian ventriloquist is you say like the dummy is saying the offensive thing, not me, Jeff Dunham. Well, but I don't, I don't try to the make conceit is, is that you are, at, you are still the person forcing the dummy to say the offensive thing. Yes, but usually what I try and do is argue the other side. And that's what I tell people. I love what I do. Right. Is because I, Good comedy is creating tension and conflict. Uh, you use those two things to create the comedy. So uh, having both characters, have me and the other character, I think it, it uh, I can argue whatever side that they're the opposite side of what they are. And right. we can have discussions about it. And usually I tried, you know, the dummy, if they say something that's uh, completely outlandish. Um, and I think that's, again, I think that's a, where, where good comedy is built in just that way. It feels though that you usually lose your arguments. Um, well, of course it's the dumb. characters. Oh, yeah. You end up being the butt of the joke. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I have to, because otherwise it's not funny. It's like, well, that guy's not very nice. <laughs> Do you care if people think that you're nice or not? Oh, sure. Who doesn't want to be thought of as nice? I, I don't like people who go, I don't care what people think. I'm like, yeah, somewhere down there you mm-hmm. do. <laughs> sure. And I, I and again, my, my I, I just want everybody to come out and have a good time at the show. I don't, uh, you know, unless to me somebody's being, it's like driving. I'm a really nice driver unless somebody's an asshole to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was supposed to live by forgiveness, but it's like, Really? You're going to tailgate me? Maybe I should tailgate you. So uh, I, I think it's the, I, it's a little bit the same way in the comedy. If somebody's misbehaving in public and being an idiot, then that's who's going to get made fun of. I know one of the other things that came out in your biography special was that you had taken out a library book called Fun with Ventriloquism in 1972. Right. And right. 10 years ago, you hadn't returned it. Have you returned it now? No. <laughs> Thanks for setting me up on that. Yeah, we had one of my shows in Dallas. We had a representative from the Dallas Public Library come to the show, and uh, we figured out, we calculated what the fine would have been from 1972, whatever it was, and then I paid him a fine, the fine, and then I okay. uh, paid for the book, and then I gave them a $10,000 donation. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to make sure things were good now. <laughs> yeah, no, and I was like, I told her on stage, I was like, you're not getting this book back, and we got a big laugh. <laughs> and the check I gave her was one of those, I mean, it was a, we really gave the check. Check, but this is a story so well uh, uh, I used to give these donations on stage and now we just do it quietly because it was like why am I doing this on stage I'm just what am I showing everybody I'm a good guy so now we do the, the donations without saying anything but I used to have whatever representative from whatever food bank from that city come on stage and give him a check for 30 grand or whatever because we do a dollar per ticket uh, we put aside and use that money for uh, for charitable organizations so we had this one woman, I can't remember what city it was, you know, this giant check, it's five feet wide, right? And two and a half feet tall. We got a call about a week later and she called my promoter. She goes, you know, uh, they wouldn't take that check. 
<laughs> she had actually gone to the bank because I say on stage, this is an actual check. And it gets a big laugh. And she mm-hmm. thought I was serious. So she took that giant check to the bank. It's like, no, no, we're sending you the, the real money. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, yeah. When you did the pandemic special, also for Comedy Central, right? Y- you mentioned that the pandemic was the first time outside of your honeymoon that you had taken a sizable chunk of time off from performing. Right. right. How did that impact your approach coming back? You know, I always wondered, I was worried about the voice, number one, because I'd never gone that long without using my voice. Um, you know, I'd never gone more than two weeks without doing a show. So to sit there for months, I was like, is it going to be like a muscle or atrophies? And I wasn't sure. So then, and then I thought, and he's getting on stage, going to be like riding a bike. Is it going to be easy? And, you know, I went through and I wrote that special. I didn't go and try out the material anywhere. I just sat down and worked on that stuff. And I thought, I think I know my craft well enough that I think these are going to get laughs. And I didn't try a joke out on anybody. I didn't talk, try them out to my wife, nothing. And we went and did the special and it actually went out went really, really well. And it was really interesting getting on stage to see if that, it was like riding a bike. And it was after two years, was it two years? Wait, hold on. <laughs> a year and a half? I don't remember how long it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a year and a half without being on stage. It act, is that what it was? I can't remember. I don't remember how long it was. It was months. Time time yeah. is a flat circle now. Yeah. So Yeah, that's right. It was months, but it actually went great. So I was, you know, the voice held up. Uh, the timing was there. The audience was awesome. And it's a little, a little more forgiving, too. People sitting at tiny cocktail tables, four people to a table. Some people, most people had masks on. You know, it was nuts, but everybody was ready to laugh. So it was great. But did you have a different approach to it after having a, a sizable layoff or were you just so happy to be back that you're like, yeah, no, I was, yeah, I was like, no, I got to get back to what I was doing. I got to dance with Hubrunga. I don't want to change anything. Let's make sure we're making people laugh again. So it was like, nah, it was a, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so do you, do you think that, you know, you said you're 60 now, do you think that means when you're 70 and I come back to interview you, you'll still be touring relentlessly? Man, I don't know. If you had asked me when I was 50, if I'd be doing it again at 60, I would have said, oh, I think I'll have slowed down by then, but uh, you know, you hear about these. Isn't that funny how so many comedians live to be ripe old ages? Yeah. It's uh, it's really, really interesting. I wonder if that says anything. I don't know. I know Jerry Seinfeld was working on a book or a film or something about all those old guys that would live to age 100 years old. And it's like, right. why is that? And then the question is, why do they keep doing it? So, you know, why is Leno still, still get out there? And I guarantee you when all these burns are done, he will be out on stage doing shows again. He is not going to slow down. It's crazy. Well, I guess the only thing that might slow you down is if you're one of your, one or both of your sons starts taking it up. <laughs> I will. I was like, please do something else. Don't be in show business. It's a pain in the ass. Have you thought about soccer? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll go to those games. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Dunham, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. John, thanks for the time. I appreciate your questions and your research. And uh, yeah, just thoroughly uh, went through it all. So really great. Thanks. All right, man. See ya. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. 
If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.